Welcome to a special Pride Month edition of the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. We hope you are well and are staying safe. We have produced more than 550 online programs since the beginning of this pandemic, and we'll continue live streaming events to the world. But we're announcing our first in-person events in more than a year, including on July 1st, when Michelle and I will host our first in-person program featuring TikTok star Nick Cho, whose millions of followers know him as Your Korean Dad. So head over to commonwealthclub.org MMS for all upcoming programs, plus podcasts and videos of past events. For those of you joining us for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization dedicated to the civil discussion of important issues of the day. Any opinions expressed here are those of the speakers. And if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box on YouTube to submit questions for our special guests today. And we want to give a thank you to Blue Shield of California for making today's important discussion possible. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and host of The Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Thank you so much, John, and you're right. I'm so excited about being able to have an in-person program again, but at the same time, I have some feelings about it, as I think a lot of us do too. What does opening up actually mean? How does it affect our community? So I'm glad you're all here today because we have an important conversation around LGBTQ mental health and recovery and resilience from a pandemic. I'm honored to introduce to you our panel tonight. It is David Bond, who is a licensed clinical social worker, board certified expert in traumatic stress and director of behavioral health at Blue Shield of California. We also have T. Drake Smith, also known as Shorty, who's an artist, an activist, actor, youth coordinator at the Oakland LGBTQ Center, and also Juan Acosta, who's an LGBTQ mental health advocate and co-author of Channel Kindness. Welcome everyone, and thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. I have not been shy as far as sharing even my own personal journey and how the pandemic has affected myself. I've lost all my hair and now recovering six months later, it's growing back a little bit, but that's just one way in which the pandemic had affected me. And so I think a good, a good jumping point, a good you know, uh, point for us to start is checking in with each and every one of you as community leaders and how the pandemic may have, have affected your world. How did COVID-19, the pandemic, affect your world. Let's start with David. Um, and, and Michelle, thank you so much for, for having me. I appreciate being here. Um, when, I, when I think back to um, how, how I was personally impacted, uh, <laughs> a lot of strange sort of strange things happened. Um, I'm an extrovert and I cope with stressors by being social and being around lots of people. So um, that wasn't available to me anymore and had to find new ways to cope with stressors, uh, which was really can be really, really frustrating um, for other people who are extroverted as well, even people who are introverted. Um, I found that in the first few months, and granted, I'm a behavioral health person, my alcohol, my alcohol consumption increased, my um, fitness habits plummeted, and my healthy eating habits plummeted. Um, my television consumption went way up, and I started being a TikTok scroller, uh, which I think, I think a lot of people kind of um, fell into that too. 
um, when we didn't, when we realized, oh, this isn't going to be a two week thing. It's not going to be a two month thing. Had to kind of like do a go meta and say, who is this person who makes these choices that didn't used to make these kinds of choices before, um, and have had to have had to take more of an active role in choosing health um, at work. I think the biggest thing was because I also work for managed care is we have to make sure that everyone still has access to mental health services and healthcare services, even though things are shutting down. So how do we have to shift operations and maybe move to telehealth access and make sure that people know that they've got that. So there was, a, there was quite a bit of flurry. Uh, and then I think as you get into like month eight or so, that fatigue really sets in. It's like, I'm so tired of Zoom meetings. I've got that. You know, it was like, at first it was cool. Like I, I, I you know, my, my mother's in her seventies, but she's kind of an old seventies and like trying to teach people how to figure out some of this tech. And then you just get that, you, you know, I, I even hear from millennials and Gen Z, it's like still like this tech fatigue. Um, so it, it, it really played on all those sorts of different levels of, of, of who I was personally and professionally. Shorty. Well, personally, um, the pandemic, well, with us being at the Oakland LGBTQ Center, we never closed. So everything we did was just like David stated, um, a million Zoom meetings. Um, at that time, we really, we just got a grant for um, rental assistance. So it was a lot of people that when everything shut down, their jobs shut down. And a lot of the jobs that shut down were jobs that you can't transfer to. It's not like you can just go move to Seattle with that mom and pop shop or you know, those type of stores. So we were helping a lot of people and it was a lot of people in need of rental assistance. Uh, we opened our clinic um, recently with all the services that we need with them. It's, it was a, it was a lot. Um, but like job wise, it, it transitioned the kids. So me being a youth coordinator, it was, it was a big, huge difference from having 15 to 20 kids in a room every week versus two or three coming because they're in virtual learning. They're sch everyone's schedules was like everywhere from um, the middle school kids, to the high school kids, and even some of the college clients that I have, it was like hectic. But it was something that um, was a definitely an eye-opener. I learned a lot about needing self-care. Just because we were at home, you know, doing our work remotely, it doesn't mean that we, we don't have self-care. So it's, it's kind of like you have to make sure that your work is getting done. You're helping the people in need, but you also have to make sure that you're okay. We can't be advocating for, you know, mental health and um, things to be a better, you know, place and state where we're not in the right state of mind to do so. So uh, it was a it was a a challenge, but nothing that we all could not conquer. You're right. We're we're here right now. Um, thank goodness. Thanks so much for sharing, Juan. Great. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm very happy to be here. Personally, for me, it really did impact my own mental health. I thought I was a mix of an extrovert and introvert, but turns out I'm very much an extroverted person and I needed my social time. In addition to that, I didn't get my graduation ceremony. And as a first generation student, that really impacted my way because it's something that not only I was working towards too, but I 
thought I owed that to my family. And even though I did graduate, I wanted them to have that moment. So that brought up a lot of feelings and I, I dealt with it in ways that weren't as healthy, but I believe in, in just reflecting. And once I reflected, I was able to get back into healthy coping mechanisms, whether it was working out and more. But what I also learned was to be grateful for things that maybe prior to the pandemic I took for granted. Grateful for the food on the table, grateful for the work that I do, because it really, the work that we're doing is, is very much necessary. I currently work as the regional manager for the Cal Hope Warm Line for the state of California. And throughout my job there, I've heard many stories of people calling in in need of support. And just the fact that people are taking that first step to reach out for support, for help, for guidance to resources says a lot of the state of our world. People want the help and making sure that people have the adequate resources is something that we should all be striving to do. I'm kind of curious because we've talked a little bit already about you know the role that Zoom and uh, other social media or online media or whatever has played. And of course, we're doing this program through a mixture of Zoom and YouTube and, and Facebook and uh, such. Um, and obviously for the club, it's, it's allowed us to continue existing for the past year. I'm interested in the role that, that these kinds of you know, uh, video chats and, and talks and such have done from the mental health point of view, both in either creating a distance between people who otherwise would be in the same room or maybe being able to talk to people um, that they wouldn't otherwise get to see and such. So if maybe each of you could kind of talk a little bit about, um, you know, the role that it's played, perhaps positively or negatively from this point of view. Um, as far as Zoom meetings go, uh, it depends on what the duration of the Zoom meeting is. <laughs> Sometimes we'll have Zoom meetings for 30 minutes, an hour, but it's been times where I've had to be required to be on Zoom for a full eight-hour day for some type of training because we weren't physically able to go inside of the building for training. So um, for me, uh, like I said before, it's very challenging um, to have to be on Zoom for eight hours. It's different, you know, when you're inside of a building, you can go out and go grab some Starbucks and come back but with zoom it's like they want you to be on camera you have to be you know semi-perfect um it is draining um i i have to agree with juan as far as the introvert extrovert thing goes i am you know half and half when it comes to that but um i would some sometimes i would rather just be in a regular room with with everyone and just having that that social time to actually engage with people it's kind of like all of us are kind of socially awkward to a certain extent. We're so used to being able to stop and give our friends hugs and things of that nature. Now it's kind of like, ah, I don't know, are you vaccinated or, you know, what's going on? Like you have to, you know, give them a, a elbow handshake, so to speak. So yeah, it's, 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 it's a challenge, but um, it's just something that has to be done. And now everyone knows that you can, you can work from home as as you can see with the pandemic so yeah i agree i believe that the in-person report is necessary um however i also think that just online zoom meetings events has been able to bridge a gap in terms of making them more accessible for many people who might not have transportation who might have to stay at home to uh, take care of their children i believe that it bridges that gap and it makes 
our event today even more accessible for others who might not be able to access it. I, I would say, um, I, I think I think Juan has shorty nailed it. The, the one piece that I would like to add though is for um, mental health providers. There, there's an interesting note before the pandemic, um, it, we all know I work for Blue Shield of California. So before the pandemic, about 4% of um, behavioral health contacts was via telehealth. And last summer, now, now it's about 70% of mental health appointments are conducted over telehealth. And uh, part of that isn't just the shift of the person who's getting therapy. There's been a huge attitude shift among behavioral health providers who now feel much more comfortable providing therapy uh, over a screen. I, I mean, with, we always, I mean, as, even when I was a therapist, it was like, if you don't have the person in the room, how do you really get to know somebody and build that rapport and build that relationship? Um, but we're seeing more and more that um, people can have more therapy out, like who, who can have more, um, they can provide more treatment and people can have greater access to treatment than, than they perceive themselves to be able to have before. So I think in that way, it can be really, really great. Um, if you can also manage the fatigue, you know, Shorty, as you were saying that I was like, when I, I have, I probably spend seven hours a day uh, on in Zoom meetings just because I'm constantly in meetings. And like, we have to give each other permission to like get up and walk around the room if you need to, have some camera off time during the meeting if you need to. Like little tricks like uh, if I'm having a one-on-one -on -one meeting, make the window with that person's face smaller than it would be in real life. Cause it's just weird to have like this giant face on your screen <laughs> that you're talking to, right? So it just um, like little tricks in here and there that yeah, we have, we've had to learn. I'll jump in and add mine. I mean, I, I had to see an optometrist this past weekend. I've been suffering from dry eyes for about two weeks now. And so my eyes are stinging and they're red and they're irritated. And we ruled out some of the serious stuff that I was afraid of, but what can't, what, what we uh, agreed upon between the doctor and I was that my eyes are screaming for some rest. So, so for recovery and, and some rest. So think about that too, if you are experiencing Zoom fatigue. I wanna shift our attention to talking about the LGBTQ community as a whole and how the pandemic may have affected our community. I heard, you know, Shorty, you had mentioned some things about uh, folks who might be experiencing homelessness. Obviously we're talking about mental health, but and the data is new, right? We're still figuring this out. We don't know exactly how this has affected our community, but I can think of many things, even for myself, like dealing with as an LGBTQ person, going through the pandemic, not filthy rich, and also an AAPI person, also a woman. There's just a lot of things that I could list of how the pandemic affected me. But let's talk about how this has affected our community in general and what you might be seeing. So add some data or, or even share, uh, you know, some notes that you may have. Uh, we'll start with David. Sure, thanks. Um, in terms of like long-term impacts, you, you can't know until you're looking retrospectively, right? And, and, being, and being able to look meta back over how things shift over time and like how did, how did that wound turn into a scar? How did the scar heal? And how do you have that long impact? And do you have a, like a long-term injury or do you just have a scar that you'll always remember? And that's kind of how trauma goes. I, I, when I think about LGBTQ folks, for example, um, I think I was going to say we. Um, I, I certainly can't speak for an L, and no one can speak for an LGBTQ community uh, or LGBTQ communities. We're all just individuals. 
but I think that if you speak with many members, it's like there's a higher, um, there's quite a sensitivity to what's going on in the world around us for groups that aren't getting treated the right way. So when we think about the year of, of, of COVID, there was also an incredibly emotional election going on. There was this renewed understanding or focus upon racial injustice. Um, and there were just so many other things going on all at the same time. So we call that really is like a complex community experience of trauma. Um, in 2016, when there was a, the, the, the massacre at the Pulse nightclub in Florida, where 49 people were killed, I live in California. I've never been to that club in Florida, but somehow those were my people too. So like there's an impact of like when something happens to your community, it's like if, some, if there's a shooting at a church or a mosque or a synagogue, how it's like people who are from those communities kind of feel like those are my people. When I think about COVID and just the year of 2020, there's almost like a camaraderie of like a, um, a war weariness almost of like things I feel like where that we, even though we were apart and isolated, this happened to all of us. And so I think that that sense of community, like this is pride season, right? When you're supposed to, when we're supposed to be able to go out onto the street <laughs> um, and experience that sense of community uh, in ways that, um, that are pretty unique. I, I think that there's a sense of bringing together and also this shared trauma experience and survivorship um, that will last for quite some time. Shorty? Um, for our community, like David said, it's pride. Last year was the first time ever that we could not go to pride. And me being an artist, it was like, oh my God, I can't perform at pride, this is crazy. And, and everyone's like, so what are they going to do? And everyone's like, oh, well, I think it's going to be virtual. It was like the togetherness was like just sad. It was so sad, the fact that we could not be together because with, with SF Pride, it's huge. Millions of people come all across the world. That's the time where people that, you know, that you've met during the years of being in the community they're coming from New York. They're coming from Australia. You get to see your friends that you never normally get to see. And that sense of friendship and that distance kind of like shattered that. And um, it took an effect on the nightlife of the LGBTQ community as well. Like uh, one of the, the clubs that was in Oakland, it just shut down, it's closed. Um, there's a lot of things that you couldn't do. So Going to work, if you were able and blessed to be able to go to work every day, it, and coming home was just, that was it. The only place you would typically go was the grocery store or the gas station. And that was that was your life. So if you were a person like me that's a super workaholic, I never was able to ever binge watch anything until the pandemic. <laughs> like, so it's like, it's, it's, it was, it was challenging, you know, overall. But it was also like depressing in a sense of not being able to see your peers and, and see how they're doing and not be able to even just engage with them, have a conversation. We couldn't even sit down at a restaurant and eat. You know, that's a, like, like Juan said, just having the normal things that you take for granted taken away from us was like really crucial. So it, it was a big, it was a big step in, in us working to, 
towards being back to normal, so to speak, is is something that I'm looking forward to, but it's also still scary because, you know, of the way of the world. Everyone's not vaccinated. Everyone doesn't believe in that. And um, it's just we can't get everyone to comply to one thing because everyone is their own person and they have their own beliefs. But as a community, this is a great time for us to come together and stand together and show support to one another at this time. And one. Yes, thank you. I want to focus on young people in particular for this and their lack of safe spaces for many young people who were now going to class virtually through Zoom at home. Maybe their home wasn't a safe space for them. So having that extra anxiety of being in a place where you feel like you don't belong was really damaging to one's mental health. And it's what I've heard throughout numerous conversations throughout the work that I do at The Warm Line and more. And recently, the Trevor Project released their annual survey, which notes that 42% of LGBTQ plus youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. And as you can imagine, those rates are increased for people of color due to the numerous other factors that they are working for or against, right? I believe that uh, David mentioned all of the fight for racial equity, which is great. Um, but it also impacted young people of color who belong to the LGBTQ plus community who maybe couldn't even focus on their struggles as an LGBTQ plus person because they were trying to survive for who they were and for their race, for their color, whatever it might have been. So oftentimes with mental health, it's more of a luxury for many young people than a, a necessity. And what we are trying to do is to make sure that people are taking care of this, to make sure that they are aware that this is something that they shouldn't ignore but it's what historically many people do. They ignore it and it, it continues and it continues to develop more and more. And that is why throughout the system, we have more people reaching a crisis point because we're not focusing on preventative care or because people just simply cannot afford to care after their, their mental health due to the numerous other concerns that they are dealing with on their day-to-day -day lives. So those are some things that I believe um, COVID really had an impact with throughout the LGBTQ plus community, in particular for young people. And, and Juan, you mentioned the uh, Trevor Project's National Survey and LGBTQ, excuse me, LGBTQ Youth Mental Health for 2021. Um, another one of the, the little data points from that that uh, kind of jumped out at me was 94% of LGBTQ youth reported that recent politics negatively impacted their mental health and when we're talking about the pandemic year, we're also talking about a year that was absolutely off the charts bonkers politically. I mean, it, even when it was over with the election, it, we found out it wasn't over. Um, could you talk a bit about the role that that played on people and how they dealt with it or didn't deal with it? I mean, do, do, I, mean I was a politi politically involved kid, so in, when I was young, I would have been talking about this to my parents and my friends, but I know that I was a weird kid. Um, you know, what, what are the, the, <laughs> the normal LGBTQ kids that you're, you, you know and you're dealing with? How are they dealing with? How did they deal with that year? And I do hope they know that it's not normal. <laughs> that was not a normal year. Yeah, what I often identify throughout the work is that for politics with the LGBTQ plus community in particular, it's part of our existence. Uh, oftentimes our existence is political for whatever reason, and oftentimes we have to fight for a right, and it's something that many people are still doing to this day, because even though uh, gay marriage is legal in the states, there's many states who are still discriminating against LGBTQ plus people. 
And I believe that for many people, especially who were advocating during uh, last year's political climate, it was out of a need for survival. And, you know, especially as advocates, you try to use your platform in a conscious and intentional way. And it does take a toll on you. And as we've been noting, oftentimes people don't take care of their mental health and don't address the toll these situations have had on them until years from now. And that is why even with this data that we have currently, it is not representative because these things take years to develop. And it, if it's not addressed, it goes into a crisis point. Um, for many, I come from an immigrant family myself. I came to this country at the age of two. So getting involved into politics has also been a part of my existence and just being a very outspoken person politically because that is how our community has survived throughout the years. And, you know, we talk about resilience often, but I, I bet you anything that many LGBTQ plus young people do not want to be resilient all the time because it is exhausting. It's a lot of emotional labor. And I believe that we can sell things as resilient and, and put a nice title to it, but it's really like, while wow, you've been through a lot and many people would say i would have rather not been through that so i believe that the focus on advocating for political causes for lgbtq plus mental health is more about to ensure that we change the system and that we're able to have young people getting the appropriate resources and support that they need early on thank you shorty what do you what are your thoughts i agree with one um me being a youth coordinator a lot of this political stuff on TV, it gets to these kids. It really does. They have those discussions with their friends. And sometimes, you know, uh, things aren't, things are different now from when I was a kid. You know, we didn't have social media as a kid. It was if something happened, you had to be there or you just heard the story. But with these kids, they're influenced. They're easily influenced by decisions that people make. And sometimes I've seen some of the kids have, one, one kid might be for, you know, Donald Trump or another kid might be for Joe Biden and those type of things. And uh, that, that kid ruined friendships, even in, in adults. But for as far as the youth goes, they're kind of like pulled in to these type of things. They're, it's like blasted on CNN. It's everywhere on their social media. These days, you don't even have to watch the news to know what's going on. You can just go to Facebook and just see what happened. And you're just like, hey. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? So um, it affects them, especially in their household. You know, no matter what they may feel or may what they may think, they might live in a household where they have to deal with that. You know, if their parent, parents believe one thing politically, that's all they know, you know? So sometimes the kids, they have to mind their own and they have that power to where they say, no, I don't believe in that. This is wrong, this is right. But sometimes it, it just doesn't happen that way. Um, I don't think people talk to kids about political things enough, like face-to-face. -face. They just rely on whatever the t television tells them. And we should also have those conversations. Like, it should happen. Um, they should be included in those conversations of, of decisions that are being made because a lot of those decisions they do need a kid's point of view because we don't know what these youth go through until they express to us how they feel. Thanks. David. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with Shorty and Juan. Uh, I was, um, I was responsible for clinical programs at the, I, when I worked at the Trevor project in 2016, it, it was as um, what I was thinking about, cause I was just talking about the pulse shooting 
and that within 24 hours of the night of the Pulse shooting, we had the highest volume calls to our, our crisis line that the Trevor Project had ever had since 1998 when it began. The, the, um, that got out, well, let me kind of say, that was the highest call volume we had at any single 24 hour period until November, the night of the election. It had double the call volume. Um, now what's interesting, and I, I, what's interesting is I'm not, going to, I'm not going to say that the results of the presidential election caused so many people to go into suicidal crisis. However, I will say that the results of that election were so emotionally impactful for so many people who didn't have a friend or someone at home to talk to about it, and they had to call a crisis line to have that conversation. Because like Shorty said, and like Juan said, it was like they didn't have, maybe they didn't have those protective factors in the home. They didn't have a father or a mother or, a pa or any parent or, or an aunt or uncle or, or a big brother or sister that they could have this conversation with about how they were feeling. They had to call hotline for it. Not, I mean, and calling hotline is good. It's not a bad thing, but I'm just saying that usually it's something that you do when you don't have someone in your in your in your right away life to have a conversation with. So when we think about during COVID, maybe you're someone who was a college age student and you grew up small town and you grew up smaller town approach to LGBTQ identities, and you're like, oh, I got to go to school in Austin. You know, like when you go away to college or you know you're in Austin you're in Chicago or something like that you get to spend a year in college and then you come home and it's like I can't wait to go back there where people get me and I see a community and there's a city and like they actually have a, a, a bar for people like me or when I say bar like they have you know a club or something like that for people who are more like me and then you go back to small town where you don't have access to those kinds of I call them resources you know it's like you don't have you know LGBTQ safe spaces to go and then you were stuck there at home for another year after you just experienced it and you had to have these conversations, you know. So um, I think we see increase in um, like, you know, like youth homelessness, uh, LGBTQ youth homelessness because of that refugee mentality where it was like they're escaping this bad situation at home. So um, I, I want to say that, though, however, there is a great deal of resilience as well. I think we, we talk about some of the vulnerabilities and the challenges that are faced on LGBTQ populations and particularly youth. However, we're also talking about a group uh, um, groups of people, communities, people that can be outrageously resilient because we've got the street cred of having gone through so much like bad stuff too that some of the stuff like we figure out how to deal with in ways that other people don't don't need to figure it out you know so um but i think the issue is that there always is someone to help there are always these like the places like if you know where to go or if you know where to call and there are people who care and that can be very helpful and it can help us can help each other to get through this just as we have gotten through so many other things so i certainly don't want to um, and I don't think that anyone here is, ha has that desire to. I don't want to like go through the narrative of like, oh, poor LGBTQ populations, they suffer so much and they don't know how, you know, like, and they're, and they're so vulnerable without really talking about that resilience on top of it as well, which definitely exists. Thank you for that, for that David. It's a great segue to what I want to say. And then also one, you know, for reminding us also how much, you know, LGBTQ people do actually go through when I was going through COVID-19 or the pandemic and going through my own situation, right? All I've ever known since coming out is fighting, fighting, you know, for my existence, 
um, fighting back, fighting for marriage, fighting for status, fighting for access to resources. And so my reaction was very much like, you're just going to fight through it in which to the point where I didn't even recognize or know that I probably needed help. I needed someone to talk to. I started experiencing things like what felt like panic attacks. I don't know if they actually were because I didn't you know, get a doctor to diagnose that or just felt like I couldn't breathe or uh, I felt like my senses were sensitive all of a sudden. So for example, you know, witnessing the tear gassing out in downtown Oakland of protesters during the George Floyd protests um, and all that made me kind of, you know, just sensitive to sound. And on the, the other side of that, though, when seeing Black trans queer women out there on the streets alongside other protesters and fighting back and talking about, you know, our own courage, our own resilience, that gave me a sense of safety, too. That made me feel like everything's going to be okay. That was a really long way of saying, you know, I think for LGBTQ people, sometimes we might forget about ourselves because we're always constantly fighting for ourselves. When do you stop and say, I think I need to talk to someone? Or what are some things that we could look for as individuals that might give you, you know, a heads up that seeking help is, is probably the right thing to do and you probably need to look for it now? Um, so give us some examples or share with us what you think, you know, for those out there who have the fight mentality, um, you know, the, these are some things that you might be able to look for if you think you need help. We'll start with Juan. Yeah, I think I, I ideally start when you start feeling bad, like there's something's wrong. I know that for me, that started when I was in middle school and I kept it to myself because I didn't want to be another stressor for my parents, even though a child should never feel that way. And it wasn't their intention. I just knew that they were working day and night to make sure that we were taken care of. Uh, I, I believe in asking for help early on can be really life-changing for people because as I said before, it, it will continue to develop. You'll continue feeling worse down the way if you just try and put it in a box and ignore it because it'll resurface at some point. I believe in, in self-empowerment. I work in peer support and I believe that the individual needs to feel ready. I don't believe in, in people taking anyone anywhere to receive the support that they need. I believe that the individual has to have that determination and self-empowerment to seek that support. And I, if, if you're a parent watching this and you don't know uh, how to deal with your LGBTQ plus child or how to talk about their mental health, I believe in fostering a safe space at home, having affirmation, affirming messages in your home, letting them know like, hey, here's a resource if you want to share it with a friend, but maybe they'll be that friend that they need it, right? And just having things accessible to them and knowing that they have someone to go to is important. But I do believe seeking for help when you start feeling bad. I, for me, it was my stomach was hurting. I was trying to avoid school. And I knew why, but I did not want to share the why yet at that point. But I believe that once you know why you're feeling that, that way, or you're trying to understand the why behind it, having someone to guide you through it is extremely important. Shorty? I agree with Juan. Um, I experienced that as a kid. Um, I didn't know how to express myself. Um, I used to get into to things that I shouldn't have gotten into as far as um, going to school, maybe um, getting into it with my teacher or my peers or something like that. 
I just didn't have an outlet. And um, back then, I never knew what, you know, at third grade, you don't know what therapy is. Um, I, the kids that would act out in school, they would just name it as a, a temper tantrum. They never really had that communication of asking the kid, like, what's wrong? It's okay to, to speak your mind, speak up. Um, because every kid has a different personality. Some kids are timid. Some people are shy. Um, some kids are outgoing, and, and some of them aren't. But um, it's just about knowing your power, knowing that you have that power. But as a kid growing up, you had those programs like Big Brother and Big Sister, and you had um, D.A.R.E., you know, for them to come to your class and tell you about um, not to do drugs and things of that nature. You had those things, and a lot of these programs aren't available. I used to go to an after-school program called Break the Cycle. It would be a different kids from different grades, and we'll all be there getting tutored by UC Berkeley students. I don't see things like that anymore, and those are where you, that those are the things that you learn. You know, your social existence by being around different cultures and different people um, and learning and having mentors. So um, for me, it's just about having that strength. And sometimes people don't find their, their why, like they, they, they were saying earlier, because they don't have anybody to look up to. We had, you know, people that we idolized as kids like, my idol was Michael Jackson. Like, there's no other Michael Jackson, <laughs> you know? Um, but I just feel like that that's thats how it is. How it is. That's how it is. I, that's how I can think of now. Um, just, just finding your power, finding your you, and finding your why. And um, it's very important that they do that. And we have to, as as mentors and counselors and coordinators we have to instill that in them and let them know like hey we're here for you those hotlines those are, those hotlines are important um these programs are very important and things like this having a, a platform for us to express that hey we know there's issues there we know that there's things going on in the world and we're here we're aware of it and we're here to, here to help you get help and we're here for ourselves to get help as well together that's just basically what we need to do have everything together thank you and and david i know i, I tossed out there a couple of things that i was experiencing but would love from to hear from you as a behavioral um uh, therapist right and kind of when to address or yeah. when you what you can look for as far as uh some some signs that maybe it's time to ask for help Sure. And thanks, Michelle, for that one, too. So I, I think, first of all, take an inventory of the people in your life is where I would start. So you take an inventory of people who care about you and people who are kind to you um, and consider taking out of that list when you're when you're thinking about where to go for help. Take a real honest look with yourself about who on that list might also be a little toxic in your life and make sure that that's not the person that you're spending a whole lot of time with. Maybe they need you too, but when you need, when you need something, you know, you know, if you think about it for a minute, you know who's toxic in your life and who you might need to spend a little bit less time with. But if you think about who cares about you, um, who is kind to you, and who gets you, 
And hopefully there are some people that you can put on that list for those con for those concepts. Maybe it's a family member, maybe it's some people at school, maybe it's some people, maybe it's even like consider teachers, you know, or consider other adults in your life as well as other people your own age in your life. Now, some people will absolutely say, I have gone through every person I have ever met and there's nobody I would put on that inventory of people who care about me and who are kind to me. And we get that, and like, I get that too. At that point, consider if you don't have people in your life who really get you and know how to be helpful for you, consider talking to a therapist. Once you're over the age of 12, you are allowed to consent to your own mental health treatment um, in most situations. Um, people don't necessarily know how to access it. So talk to a counselor at school, talk to a teacher you know, and people, there are professionals around here who know how to do that and can help you figure it out. Um, uh, and it always, doesn't always have to be professional therapy either. There are all sorts of different kinds of counselors um, and, and people who are therapy-like um, who can be helpful in your life. Um, there are lots of like peer counselors who can do a much better job at helping you through something than a professional psychologist can from, you know, from, from, for certain things. Um, I, I would also say um, there is, we have the, L, we have the um, LGBTQIA plus COVID uh, support guide that, that Blue Shield has put out and it's accessible to everybody. Um, I think we'll, we'll probably, I think there's a slide on that will show up later, but that's accessible to anybody and that's at bluesky.blueshieldca.com. Um, take a look, it's like four pages. It's got some great tips and just things about how to consider your own mental health. Um, but you gotta choose. You have to choose behaviors. You, you can't choose how you feel, but you can choose Sometimes, like how you think about it, how you respond to things, most of the time. If you, if it's a learn, it's it's a learned skill. But you can make those choices. So it's kind of like I was talking before. Is like, yeah, when COVID happened, my alcohol consumption went up. I had to check myself on that and bring it back down. So, so you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have kind of an awareness of what's going on with you and be able to figure that out. But I'm sorry, I, I, I've gone on and on. The question was like, how to know when to ask for help, and I think it's that point of like, when you feel like. If you if you if someone's not getting you and that's what you need, I think that that's a good point. Um, you're not paying a therapist to care about you. Therapists get paid like they have a skill set to understand and get you and to figure out how to um, how to solve things with alongside you. I'm glad you mentioned uh, the the guide. Um, if our video team could put up the slide we have there, uh, showing some uh, self care help and and other resources. Um, let's take that then in the direction of specifically, what are some self-help things that people, or self-care things that uh, youth can do? Uh, maybe start again with you, David. Well, that, I, I think the, the number one thing I would do is, 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 uh, is consider your self-care and your support network legit, take an inventory of it, make sure you've got those phone numbers in your phone. And when you're having low lows, remember that you actually do have someone to call who cares about you. And if you don't, if you don't have that person readily available in your life, then you can put it, you can text start to 741741 and start a crisis text line conversation with somebody who's going to be there 24 seven, just have that conversation when you need, just make sure you've got that. The other one is of course, just being intentional about making healthy choices. Like I talked about for a couple of, uh, I talked about a couple of times. And when you're in a good space, when you're in a good space, prep, for when you're in a low space. Because when you're in a low space, it's the hardest time to problem solve. 
So when you're like, I actually know what to do to help myself feel better most of the time and take a legit inventory, make yourself a list, write those things down. Um, because when you're at your low, low, you remember to look at that thing and actually do the things that you said would help you to feel better. Nice point. Shorty, any thoughts about self-care? I think that everyone, I'm very, I'm a big advocate for self-care. I think everyone needs self-care, period. I feel like the things that I do for self-care before the pandemic, I was going to um, a massage therapist once a month, uh, making sure that I'm okay. Right now I'm going to like a chiropractor. I got injured, but uh, I think if I never would have got injured, I never would have went to a chiropractor. Um, but as far as like just taking those those walks, just if you get up in the morning, just take take a walk. Um, clear your head. Sometimes you might not need to bring your headphones to listen to music. Um, I downloaded an app called Calm. Um, I was having trouble sleeping at night because of everything that was going on in the world and just life in general. Um, the Calm app has people on there that speak to you. Like they're like therapists and they have uh, like soft, warm music that you can play, you know, just to calm yourself down. And they have these uh, exercises, like breathing exercises. Um, I think uh, working out is a good thing to do for self-care because during quarantine, I was just eating everything under the sun. Um, so I, everyone said, you know, you have that quarantine body because that's what happens. Um, working out is good. Uh, reading, that is something that a lot of us don't have time for to where to the point where you're just getting like your book on tape. Like you're listening to your your book while you you are taking that job. You have to figure out different avenues and um, different ways to multitask. But I honestly feel like you should find who you really are, your true self. Um, I like candles, so candles are good. Sage is good um, to sage your house, sage your office, sage everything. I just think <laughs> sage is good for the soul and um, just being happy finding what makes you happy i would do things um as an outlet like i um i have a clothing line so i would take um some of the clothes that i would have i would i would bleach them or i would have get paint and i'll paint them or i ordered a whole bunch of um canvases from amazon and i was just going out on my balcony and just painting so if you find something uh, extracurricular activity to do that is fun it might not even you know involve your friends it might just be something for you just make sure you have time for you yourself i think that's very important for everybody especially the youth they need that because they're like consumed with all these zooms and you know what what's in and what's out and you know bullying and what's popular so they need to have an outlet thank you shorty and juan well, I agree with everything everybody said, uh, but I also believe in boundaries, setting boundaries and making sure that I'm being intentional on in those boundaries. I believe that self-care for me is respecting myself. That means respecting my time, respecting myself with the people I surround myself with, taking myself out of toxic environments and saying no to people or things when I don't want to do things or when I feel like I don't have the capacity. I believe in reflecting and practicing gratitude and listening to music and setting mantras for myself. One of the ones I always use is I am more than one moment. And for me, that means I am more than one moment of success of me feeling okay. And I'm more than one moment of failure or me feeling challenged. 
And I believe that helps me stay grounded throughout the day. And it's what's been propelling me to continue on throughout my journey in advocacy. Thank you so much for that. And so as we wind down, I think, you know, a couple things Juan had mentioned earlier was um, you know, talking about our community as a whole, LGBTQ, and the issues that we face, and, you know, just this road that we have to walk. And there was something that you said, Juan, about, you know, we have to change the system. Like, it shouldn't always be so hard. And while I appreciate our strength and our courage and our resilience as a community, because it almost feels like nothing could really stop us or break us. We're, we're always going to overcome these challenges as a community. I'd love to hear from all of you and maybe some messages that you might have uh, for our community as we come out of this pandemic. I mean, some of us are still experiencing the violence. Um, some of us are experiencing you know, really hard times, really hard challenges. Some of us are still grieving the people that we lost due to the pandemic. And so if you could just share, you know, what, what is that system? What is changing that system? What does a point in which, you know, LGBTQ people um, do not have to struggle? Like, what does that mean, especially coming out of a pandemic? We'll start with Shorty. I think coming together would be uh, a good, a good strategy a lot of times people feel as though, like for me, for example, if they say, oh, Black Lives Matter, there are some people that only, it's only for specific people. It's not for LGBTQ. We always have to let them know, like all Black Lives Matter, not just, you know, the, the heterosexual aspect of it. Um, sometimes LGBTQ people are overlooked um, for things. And um, if you never speak up about it and you never bring it to people's attention, um, then it will never get solved. So I, I think basically people coming together as one and having a, a better open mind of things and, and not being so like secluded and so stuck in the old ancient days, you know, I think people need to, to grow and grow with the times. Uh, everyone's not the same. You know, you might find someone that, is, you know, was born in the 70s, there's no way that they can compare to someone that was born in the 90s. They are like, you know, ancestors to them. They would have to be, you know, mentors and people that would, would guide that millennial um, age bracket. Um, I believe that um, one thing that has occurred at the Open LGBTQ Center, um, I was able to be into a group with the elders and just sit in their, their session in their group and it was amazing to listen to their stories it's not every day that you see the youth engaging with the elderly and i think that will change a lot of things as well um so i just think that everyone should be open-minded everyone should speak their mind and um particularly listen to others and even if they don't if they're not believing in what they're saying or just if they don't, if they have their own beliefs and things, I think that they should just listen and hear them out. I think communication is is very much so key with with everything. More communication. One. I believe in taking yourself out of it and focusing on the community, right? Because a lot of times, people only want to attend to their specific needs. As I said previously, many people think that because LGBTQ plus marriage is legal in the States, 
that means that everything is okay on their end because maybe topics like racial equity doesn't directly impact them. And in this country in particular, when you have uh, trans women of color being murdered at such high rates every single year, there needs to be a focus around that as a collective, as a true community. And oftentimes there's a lot of differences within your own in-group that, that occur. And I believe that if we focus on the bigger picture, remind each other of the why, why are we doing this and not make it about just one side of the community, but rather the whole and fighting for each other every single time. And not just when it's something that directly impacts a certain sector of the community. I believe in, in having those proactive conversations, listening to one another. Oftentimes people just talk at one another. There's no learning. There's no true intention to want to support one another. And I believe in just being intentional, proactive, and making sure that you're attending to all of your brothers, your sisters, your non-binaries, et cetera, within the community. It's important to focus on the whole community. And David. Thanks. Um, Shorty, I, I appreciate what you said about intergenerational um, components here, too. I think that there's there's so much progress to be celebrated. and and. There's there's so much progress to be made, but there's such an opportunity for us to um, to respect the people who came before us too. It's like the things that the things that we're fighting for now are things that we're really we're talking about access to healthcare. We're talking about access to equitable healthcare. We're talking about um, we're talking about trans girls getting to play on women's sports teams. I mean, we're, we're, where see I was like I, I was born in the 70s um, and when when I was growing up in you know in junior high and high school the only you know like there were no LGBTQ people on TV at all not Will and Grace not Ellen like zero there was Pedro on the real world three and he was dying of AIDS and so like that was the only media concept and people didn't you know there was no social media there was no internet really well internet was invented while I was in high school I think that concept of like because people people fought to not be arrested for wearing a dress. Later on, people could fight to be able to hold hands in public without being arrested or beaten up or threatened. And to later be able to fight to be able to marry the person you love, to be able to be able to fight to be on an agenda affirming an appropriate sports team. It was like, oh, the fight keeps evolving to be something different and different and different. And we always, I think that it's very, very important to respect that pride is it is pride season is really to respect all of the progress that has been made by LGBTQ communities and and to give that respect and name those people who who have led us through uh, previous challenges so that we can fight the fights that need fighting today. Speaking of evolution and and uh, hopefully improvement, but specifically on the coming out of the pandemic and and on mental health and and uh, LGBTQ youth. Um, do you think the as a result of what we all went through in the pandemic um, that the services and the advice and the the opportunities that are there kind of the, if you will the the mental health infrastructure is better as a result of having gone through the pandemic and it's better able to um, address needs or did we really just kind of go through 15 years where we we kind of realized oh, 15 years excuse me 15 months where we realized a lot of the gaps in the system or things that we weren't able to um, address with it any thoughts on that Stick with i think oh, uh, <laughs> i think it's more accessible 
uh, a lot of therapists were definitely uh, coming out of retirement, just like a lot of these nurses and doctors were coming out of retirement when people were like quitting the hospital, like, oh, I can't do this. I'm not doing this. So uh, I, as far as saying better, I think it really helped being able to call your therapist on Zoom, being able to speak to someone over the phone, the communication, because it was forced. You know, we were forced to wear a mask, wear gloves, have social distancing. So we didn't have a choice but to say, hey, you know what? I have to call my therapist on Zoom. This is this is something that has to happen. And you can really have an excuse to be like, oh, I can't go to my therapy session. Why not? You're at home. You're we're, we're shut in. Why can't you get on Zoom today? Like, what's going on? So I think the access the access to it was was definitely a, a change in a good way. It, it had a lot of more people realizing, like, you know what? I think I might need to just talk to a therapist. Um, let's see what's going on with this, this anxiety. Let me check on my mental health. I, I think something's wrong, but I don't know what to call it. I'm not quite sure. People were more comfortable admitting that they need some type of help and some type of structure. And so I think I think it helped a little bit more than it would have just on a regular on a regular basis. So it did it did put a dent in it. I can agree to that. It would look like you had something to say. I did. I got excited. Shorty Shorty kind of touched on it too. I, I think um I, I think a huge thing that happened during the pandemic was it took a giant chunk out of stigma in talking about how we're doing. It was like the whole world took a giant punch in the chest, but we all took a punch in the chest. So we were allowed to talk to each other about it. Um, and just metaphorically and, and young people do such a better job. Like Gen Z is the first generation and millennials too, but to be able to talk about mental health, like you scroll through TikTok. I mean, like there's, there's like people talking about their anxiety and their depression and their ADHD and so forth, like two mad, like mass audiences without all of the stigma associated with it. And just kind of like, Hey, and people are seeing it and they're like, yeah, that's me too. I'm struggling like that too. And that whole, like, I'm the only one and I'm alone and isolated that, that, that's really getting wedged away at. Now, if we can actually get all those folks to the help that they need because we're capable of talking about it, I, I think that we'll see, um, we, should, we should continue to see that positive impact. Juan, any thoughts? Yeah, I, I agree with them. I do believe that, you know, resources are more accessible now and it bridged that gap now having them virtually as we were talking about in terms of peer support groups, et cetera. But I also think that we don't need just more accessibility to resources. We need intentional resources. I believe that you can create how many ever resources you want and put up a poster with butterflies and rainbows that states this is a safe space. But if it's not true to that nature and if we don't have actual measures of how people are measuring that these resources work for everybody and that they're truly a safe space for LGBTQ plus young people, et cetera. Uh, the system won't change. So I, I, I do believe that there's that room for growth in terms of resources that people are being presented to with right now. And if we're talking about young people in particular, I believe there's a need for more preventative mental health resources, more education in school about this. And whether it's putting more phone lines in your syllabus when you're presenting to your campus at the start of the year, I believe all of that can be truly life-saving to many people. Hopefully the powers that be are watching this or they'll watch it soon and they'll hear you one and that's a great idea. Well, let's end on a positive note. Share very quickly one thing that you're excited about um, you know, as we kind of get out of this pandemic uh, or maybe it's just something that 
you know, we are moving forward, you're moving forward to, you're working on something. Share one thing that you're excited about. David, let's start with you. Um, I live in San Diego and our pride is at the end of July. So we actually got one this year. <laughs> um, so we, we don't, I mean, there, there isn't going to be the, the, the big festival or whatnot, but I think that because things are opened up, people are going to be out celebrating in one way or another. And I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate to live in a big city. So I get to go and be a part of, of that. I think I'm, I'm, I'm very, very excited about that. Juan? I'm excited to continue my work, to continue doing hopefully in-person events now at this point and not just Zoom events. But personally, I'm excited to just go out with my friends, have a good time and, and do the things I was doing before the pandemic started and you know try to have as much fun as I can this summer. And Shorty. Starting new ventures. I, um, me being an influencer as well, um, it's a, it's a challenge, and like like David was saying, uh, the TikTok it's 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 very um, influential uh, as far as like the stigma he stated. Like it's different now, so I want to be able to encourage people to um, speak their mind and express their feelings without feeling like they're going to get backlash or someone's going to laugh at them or or get bullied. We, we're going to deal with you know things like that, but I just. I just want to work on new ventures, find new activities to do. Um, like Juan said, get back to going out with my friends, you know, having fun, being in the social uh, settings, and just enjoying life. Um, that's pretty much what I want to do and, and get back to my pre-quarantine weight. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you all for being with us today and for being a part of this program on recovery and resilience in the LGBTQ community after a pandemic. Thanks to all of you at home joining us. Uh, for more information, I, I do think that you need to follow all of all three of our speakers today. We had David Bond, T. Drake Smith, aka Shorty, and Juan Acosta. And so, John, it's you tradition again. here where you you end the show. I'll I'll, I'll take it away and. Thanks again to all of our special guests on this Michelle Miao show uh, at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thanks to all of you for watching or listening to this program. And again, thank you to Blue Shield of California for making the program possible. Feel free to share this video with your friends, family, and others in the network. You can find more programs at commonwealthclub.org slash MMS. Stay safe and have a good week. Bye.